turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, if you're visiting with us, we welcome you this morning. One of the things we do at Calvary Chapel is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 2. And the title of this section is Dealing with Spiritual Predators. Dealing with Spiritual Predators. Now, I admit we're going to cover a lot of information this morning. We're going to do all of chapter 2. This chapter contains a lot of stuff. We could literally do three or four messages, but we're going to give you a, just a general overview of dealing with spiritual predators. Now, I think if you have children, one of the things when your children were growing up, if they're now adults, and if you're raising children that are younger, one of the things that you warn them of is against sexual predators. We know that there has been an increase in the amount of sexual predators today due to the internet and due to cell phones. And one of the things we tell our children is, here are some of the signs or the indicators that you're to look for if somebody is trying to prey on you. In fact, maybe you watched it years ago, MSNBC did a whole segment on to catch a predator. And basically what they do is they posed as if they were a 12 or 13-year-old girl, and this supposed 12 or 13-year-old girl would engage in some type of texting or internet email conversation with the so-called predator. And this predator's thinking, well, I'm alluring this girl, not realizing that there is an adult on the other end about to expose me. And so this went on and on, and then finally, this would-be 13-year-old girl said, well, I'll meet you at this location. And so they met up only for one of the reporters at MSNBC to show up along with a detective. And of course, when you look at the man's face, realizing that he has been caught red-handed in his wickedness, it actually is alarming. I was reading this week about two predators that were caught, and these particular gentlemen said, here are some of the things that we did in order to allure kids, in order to capture them in our sexual web. One of the things that they said was, we first try to act like a normal person. In other words, be a, be a person that someone would like, like a football coach or a well-known teacher. And then secondly, they said, we try to build trust. Then thirdly, they said, we spend time with this person. We try to isolate them, and we continually engage them in conversation, building that relationship through Facebook or texting or Twitter or whatever kids use today. This is exactly how sexual predators operate today. But listen, even more alarming in the church today are spiritual predators. And spiritual predators prey on young Christians in the faith who don't know the Word of God, and what happens is they allure them with spiritual candy. They allure them with video games. They allure them and they say, hey, your mom or your dad wants me to come here and pick you up and take you home. See, this is how spiritual predators or false teachers operate today. And that's really the theme of Colossians chapter 2. Most of Paul's letters are very polemical. And what I mean by polemical is he's attacking an adversary. Because whenever you have truth, you're going to have error. Because Satan is the father of lies, and one of the things as an angel of light he wants to do is he wants to disseminate error in order to keep non-believers in their sin, keep them deceived, blind them, so they will not spend eternity with God, but he also wants to hoodwink Christians who are not grounded in their faith. Why? Because he wants to not only deceive them, but he wants to derail them spiritually so that they will not mature in their walk with God and make an impact for the kingdom. And so the theme of chapter 2 is how to deal with spiritual predators. Now remember, just to review, in Colossians chapter 1, as Paul opened the letter, you'll notice the map up on the screen. The apostle Paul never actually planted the church here in Colossae. This is Asia Minor. Today, we would call it modern-day Turkey. Paul had a ministry, according to Acts chapters 19 and 20 in Ephesus, and it says that he stayed there two years and he taught the Word of God. And it says, as a result, all of Asia Minor heard the Word of God. And what many scholars believe is all these churches were planted as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And one of the gentlemen that was sitting under Paul's ministry was a man mentioned in Colossians chapter 1 by the name of Epaphras. 
Epaphras took the gospel to Colossae and started a local church. This local church may have met in Philemon's home. Philemon, if you remember, was the man that Paul wrote one little letter to. It's a New Testament postcard. Of course, Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 4, Laodicea and Heropolis, and they swap letters as they read them. No doubt all these letters were probably swapped and read among one another. Now, one of the problems in Colossae was false teachers, we don't know the nature exactly of them, how many they were, but they descended on Colossae, and what they did was they were trying to deceive the believers there. And so Epaphras ends up leaving Colossae, he goes to Rome where Paul is in jail, and he basically says, Paul, the Colossians are doing good, but we got a problem. False teachers are coming in, and they're sort of confusing everyone. And here was the nature of the heresy. If you look at the next slide, they were teaching basically a Gnostic Christ. Now, Gnostics basically believed that matter was evil and spirit was good. It was a form of dualism. Anything that was made out of matter, like your body, is evil. Anything spiritual is good. And so they were teaching a Gnostic Christ. What they said, if you look up here, the true God is made out of pure spirit. Christ was created by God, and Christ is simply one being in a line of long, what they called evil demiurges. Now, Christ was pure, but as you move down these emanations, you get to this evil demiurge. It was one of these evil um, emanations that created the physical world. God could not have created the physical world. Christ could have not created the physical world because matter is what? Evil and spirit is good. And so what does Paul have to do? In chapter 1, he debunks this philosophy, and he says, wait a minute, Christ is the image of the invisible God, and furthermore, John went over this in chapter 1, Christ actually what? Created the material world. He created all things visible and invisible. And so what Paul is doing is he's exposing this Gnostic Christ. And so what they did in Colossae was they demoted Christ... And they said Christ was good, but he's not sufficient to save you. And so they were corrupting Christ and the gospel message. And so what Paul does when he writes this letter, particularly chapter 2, is he goes into how to deal with spiritual predators. Now, this is a problem in our day and time today. In fact, this was predicted in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul warned Timothy that in the latter days, and we're in the latter days, he says, there would be a proliferation of false teachers who would teach doctrines of demons. And it says that it would come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared by a hot iron. In other words, Satan uses false teachers to disseminate lies. And so today, false teachers operate through Facebook, they operate through your television, they operate through CDs, they operate through MP3 players, they operate through books and articles. It's all over the place because we have media today. And so as Christians, we need to be alert. Now, most of us here, because you are well taught, and there are a lot of other good churches where people are well taught, what happens is if Christians are not given a steady diet of the truth, they're going to be more susceptible to error. And most Christians know that false religious systems out there are wrong. Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Shintoism, Confucianism, all the isms out there. We know that they pretty much have a distorted view of Jesus and they teach a work salvation. However, most Christians are often victimized by false forms of Christianity. What is a false form of Christianity? It's when Christianity is mixed in and you have enough truth with enough error and it's able to deceive people. And so JWs, Mormons, and other forms of false forms of Christianity are out there. And what do they do? They prey on Christians who do not know their Bible. In fact, I would venture to say that most Jehovah Witnesses know their Bible better than most evangelical born-again Christians. And really, they put us to shame. If a Jehovah Witness knocked on your door and said, Jesus is not God, he's God's first created being, would you be able to take them to the Bible and show them why Jesus is God of very God? You see, as Christians, we got to be equipped. Now, in this passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is going to give us three ways 
that you and I can insulate ourselves against false teachers. Let me share them with you. First of all, we must love the truth. We must love the truth. Notice what he says here, beginning in verse 1 and 2. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for those who have not met me personally or seen my face. Now, the operative word here is the word struggle. The word means to agonize. It's an athletic term. It's a military term. It means you're in some great battle and some great struggle. I played football when I was in high school. I understand a little bit of the imagery. I remember in August, we would have two-a-day, and one year we had three-a-day practices. This is in South Florida in Miami. And I'll never forget one year, the humidity was like today, even worse. It was very oppressive. And I remember by 7 a.m. in the morning, we were doing our calisthenics, we were stretching, and I remember as I'm stretching, the sweat is just dripping off my face. And I remember we were in this great struggle to try to prepare for the games. Well, Paul had a struggle, and he says to the Colossians, look, I haven't met you personally, because remember, Paul didn't plant the church, Epaphras did. So he never met the Colossians. He was in jail. And he says, even though I haven't met you and the Christians at Laodicea, no doubt the Christians in Hierapolis, he says, I want you to know that I have a great struggle for you. What was his struggle? His struggle was because the truth was under attack. And you see, what that implies is Paul had a love for the truth. Paul did not want the gospel to be distorted. He did not want Jesus to be demoted. And so Paul had this struggle for Christians, not only at Colossae, but the church at large, because he wanted Christians to be grounded in the truth. Now remember, the Colossians were doing pretty good spiritually. If you go back, notice if you will, verse 5, Paul says this to the Colossians, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Paul knew that they were doing pretty good spiritually. He says, I'm rejoicing that you're pretty sound in your faith, that you're disciplined, that you're stable, that you're growing. But here was his concern. In verse 4, he says this, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. I like what the NIV says in verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. You see, Paul loved the truth, and he knew that these false teachers were like slick lawyers that wanted to basically use argument in order to deceive them. Years ago when we lived here, we'd been to South Carolina, I think three times in our whole ministry. And I remember one year, it was New Year's, we were going to see a friend in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and I pulled over at a rest stop, and I wanted to get a snack, go to the bathroom, and as I came out, this gentleman accosted me, and he was selling cologne. And I like cologne. My dad gave me cologne growing up, and so I wear it all the time. And I said, well, what kind is it? He said, well, here, and he sprayed it on my hand. I smelled it. It smelled really good initially. And I said, this hasn't been diluted with water, has it? And he said, no, it's not diluted with water. And here was the best part. It was only $10. Well, that should have given it away right there. So I ended up buying it. Come to find out it was diluted by water. I was hoodwinked. You see, sometimes the genuine and the fake, we don't know what's genuine. We don't know what's fake. That's exactly what false teachers do. And you see, Paul loved the truth. He had a great struggle in his heart. Why? Because he did not want the Colossian Christians to buy into the false. I was reading an article this week about a man who owned a business, and he said that this guy walked in, and like Paul said, he had some fine-sounding arguments. He was selling some watches, and basically he presented the watches as being genuine. He showed him the trademark he showed him the particular brand, and this guy ended up listening to the spiel, and he bought a watch, only to come back later to realize that he looked at the fine print. He didn't stare at it. It wasn't really the same trademark of an expensive, well-known watch. In fact, it said, instead of being made of genuine leather, it was made of lizard, genuine lizard. And so because he didn't examine the fine print and a few words were changed around, he ended up being deceived. 
And so Paul says, look, I don't want you to be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. Paul struggled because he loved the truth. Let me ask you a question. Do you love the truth? Do you have a love for the truth of God's Word? You see, when I love the truth, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to search it out. When I love the truth, when somebody's led astray, it's going to bother me because I have a love for the truth. If I love the truth, I'm going to defend the truth. In fact, if I love the truth, I may have to die for the truth. There have been martyrs throughout church history that have died for the truth. One particular gentleman is a man by the name of John Huss. When I was in seminary, I had to write a paper on this man. He lived in the 1300s, and basically, he existed prior to the Protestant Reformation, which started in 1517 under Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the one that stood against the Catholic Church, and we're here today because God used him to take a stand. Well, John Huss, several hundred years prior, had read the writings of Wycliffe. In fact, Wycliffe, there's Wycliffe translators overseas. Wycliffe basically said, you're saved by faith alone, and the Bible is the Word of God. It's not the Bible plus the Pope, the Bible plus traditions, the Bible plus church councils. He had a lot of things. Well, John Wycliffe's writings ended up influencing John Huss. And John Huss lived in Prague at the time, Czechoslovakia. And he would preach two times a day in the Bethlehem Chapel. Well, as he preached the Word of God, people were listening and they were going, wait a minute, what I've been taught by the Catholic Church is not coinciding with the Bible. And so people would flock to hear him. Well, finally, the Pope got fed up. And the Pope said, you are teaching doctrine that is contrary to the Catholic Church. Well, they ended up imprisoning him, they starved him, and finally, they put him at the stake and they burned him. In fact, his name, John Huss, the word Huss, literally means goose. And you'll notice the quote up on the screen here. Here is what he says as they were getting ready to cook him. I have said that I would not, for a chapel full of gold, recede from the truth. Why? Because he loved the truth. I know that the truth stands and is mighty forever and abides eternally with whom there is no respect of persons, end quote. And before they burned him, he said, you may cook this goose, but in a hundred years, God is going to raise up a swan. And you know who that swan was? Martin Luther. When Martin Luther read this quote and heard the quote about the swan, he said, I am the swan that God has raised up to stand for the truth. Why did these men and other men and women throughout history die? Because they loved the truth. And you and I, if we're going to avoid being victimized by false teachers, we got to love the truth. You say, Mike, how can I do that? Well, listen, it's something that you grow into. When you get saved, you embrace Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life. You see, it starts there. You got to embrace Jesus. And then you know what happens? John 17 says, thy word is what? Truth. You got to study the truth of God's word. You got to hunger for the truth of God's word. You got to learn Bible doctrine. Daily bread is okay, but listen, it's not enough. You got to study the Bible systematically. Sunday is good, but it's not enough. You got to open your Bible, you got to learn the Word of God, and the more you learn it, and the more you grow in your relationship to God, you know what happens? You get a greater love for the truth. And listen, once you obey the truth, you know what God does? Now watch this, God gives you more truth. Remember in Matthew 13, Jesus gave a parable and he said this, to him who has little, it'll be taken away from him. You say, what does Jesus mean by that? That almost seems cruel. What he's saying is, if you have information and you don't take that information and apply it, God's going to take away the little information you have. On the other hand, he says, he who has been given much, if he takes what he's been given and applies it, he'll be given more. So that's the key. If you want to have a greater love for the truth, you got to study the truth, you got to obey the truth, and you know what God does? God reveals to you more truth. And so, do you love the truth this morning? If not, ask God to give you an appetite for the truth. And listen, it grows over time. I can look back when I got saved up to now. My love for the truth has grown. I have a greater desire for the truth. Now, 
We don't want to take the truth and beat it over people's heads. And yes, I understand that there are doctrines that are debatable within the Christian life. We understand that. We can agree to disagree with other Christians. But when it comes to the core foundational doctrines of the faith, you and I need to love the truth. Well, there's a second way that we can avoid being victimized by spiritual predators. Not only do we need to love the truth, but secondly, we need to grow in the truth. We need to grow in the truth. Notice, if you will, verses 1 through 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who at Laodicea and for all those who have not met personally or not personally seen my face. He says, I want you to know the struggle that I'm having for you Christians. Why? Notice what he says in verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged. See, that's growing in the truth. You know what Paul's concern was? You know what his struggle was? That they would be strengthened in their mind. That's what the word heart means. It's not your pumping organ. It's the mind. He says, I want you to be encouraged or strengthened in your mind. I want you to grow in the truth. He says, having been knit together in love, you're already united together in love. The implication is I want you to be united around the truth. And then here is his reason, and here is where he wanted them to grow, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Who is God's mystery? Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here is what he's saying. He's saying, I have a struggle because I want to strengthen you in your mind, and here is what I want you to have. I want you to have the full assurance, the full understanding of who Jesus is. Why? Because Jesus was being attacked in Colossae, the Gnostic Christ. And he said, I want you to have the blessing of the full assurance of who Jesus is. And he mentions two things about Jesus, and it's a subtle attack against the Gnostics. Number one, he says, Jesus is the mystery of God. What does that mean? It means that God is hidden to some degree, and Jesus Christ came to reveal him. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so, he's the mystery of God. By the way, the Gnostics, they talked about the mysterion, the mystery. If you're going to be saved, you have to have this mysterious knowledge. In order to be initiated, you had to have this secret, mysterious knowledge. You see, Paul is tacking that and saying, no, there is no secret spiritual knowledge. Jesus is the mystery of God. And then secondly, he says of Jesus, he is the true treasure. He says in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's attacking the Gnostics because they believe those emanations that came from God. In order to get to God, you had to go through those emanations. And he's saying, no, Jesus is the one in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want salvation, you find it in him. Do you remember this movie up on the screen? If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. It's called National Treasure. Do you remember Nicolas Cage? He has these maps and he's trying to find clues because there's this hidden treasure that our forefathers basically buried away. And his father and his friends said, it can't be done. You'll never find it. It's a dead end. And then finally at the end of the movie, sorry, I'm a movie spoiler here, he ends up finding the treasure on the right. He goes into this vault and there's all this gold and all this wealth and all this stuff from ancient times. And you see, Jesus, in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, You see, Paul here is saying he wants them to grow in their understanding of who Christ is. Now, if you look at verses 6 and 7, he continues on this idea of growing in the truth. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, here it is, so walk in him. In other words, you accepted Jesus at salvation, but you don't stop there. You got to grow. You got to walk with Christ. And then in verse 7, he mentions another aspect of growth. Having been firmly rooted, you were planted at salvation, but you got to sink your roots down. You got to grow. And then he says, and now being built up in him, that's spiritual growth, and established in your faith, that's growing in Christ, just as you were instructed. You see, you can't grow unless you're instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, let me summarize what he's saying here in relation to spiritual growth. He uses four metaphors here to talk about spiritual growth in verses 6 and 7. He uses walking, 
in verse 6. He uses planting in verse 7. He uses building in verse 7. And he uses budding, overflowing with thankfulness. The Greek word there means to bud, just like roses. See, these are four metaphors that describe how you and I need to grow in our relationship to Jesus Christ. You say, why is spiritual growth so important if I'm going to overcome false teachers? Listen, the more knowledge you have, the more Christ-like you are, and the more you sink your roots into God, you're not going to be easily deceived. 1 John chapter 2, John says, I write to you young men and you young women because the word of God abides in you, and watch this, you've overcome the evil one. How do you overcome the evil one? The word of God abides in you. You see, spiritual growth is so critical in our walk if we're not going to be hoodwinked by spiritual predators. Because if I know the Bible, I'm a Berean Christian, I'm able to take what I hear and I'm able to measure it against the truthfulness of God's word. And you know what happens when I'm a mature Christian and I know the Bible? I'm able to distinguish truth from error. I was reading a humorous story a couple of years ago. I actually printed it and I filed it about in Hudson, uh, New York. It's up by Albany, New York. Police officers got a call and this particular person on the line said to the police officer, uh, there's a car on this street and there is a, a dead woman in the car, a dead elderly woman. And so the police responded. They went to the car. It was in the dead of winter. And sure enough, they saw this woman in the car frozen to death, and she had an oxygen mask on her face. And so the cop broke the back window, unlocked the door, only to realize that it was a mannequin. It wasn't a real woman. She looked so authentic and she looked so real that he busted the window. And when the guy came out who owned the car, he said to the officer, dude, what are you doing? They said, well, you know, we thought this was a woman. He said, no. He says, I'm a medical supply guy. And he goes, I use this mannequin in order to sell my product. You see, distinguishing between truth and error, what's false and what's genuine, that's what growing in our faith does. And listen, this is critical that you grow and you also help others to grow. I was in New Jersey two weeks ago, and I had lunch with a couple from my previous church and this particular individual, the lady, had been praying for her mother for years. Her mother has been diagnosed with cancer. She's terminal, and they haven't given her a long time to live. And so after we had lunch, I said, let's go by, and I'll share the gospel with your mom. And she said, that would be great. So I went by. I grabbed the lady with her hands, and I said, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? She said, I don't know. And so I gave her the gospel, and she said, I'm ready. And so I led her in the sinner's prayer right there. Well, I'll tell you what, when people make a profession of faith, I don't know if it's genuine, only God knows. Time will reveal whether or not it was genuine or was simply a profession. Well, her daughter texted me and said, you wouldn't believe it, my mom had to go back to the hospital and she's telling all the nurses about Jesus. And so I called the mother and she said to me, as soon as I talked, she said, you changed my life. I said, I didn't do anything. I said, God changed your life. And then I said to her daughter, I said, I'm going to send you some materials. And so I got some of the materials in our church here, and I mailed it, and I said to the daughter, you need to disciple your mother. Why? I don't know how much time she has, but listen, it's important that we try as much as possible to ground people in their faith to help them grow in their walk with God. You say, Mike, well, how can I grow? Well, let me show you this diagram here, this circle this will help you understand how growth happens. First of all, you got to study the Bible. We've talked about that. John emphasizes that week after week. You got to study the Bible and you got to get information. Now, you're listening, say amen. Information alone does not mature you. You can't grow without information from the Bible, but information itself is not going to grow you. But you got to study the Word. Now, what happens is you form beliefs from the Word. And then you want those beliefs to develop into convictions. Now listen, this is where a lot of Christians get tripped up. For example, I can believe in evangelism, but it needs to develop into a conviction. I can believe in giving, but it needs to develop into conviction. 
Because if it becomes a conviction, it will impact my behavior. If I believe that lost people matter to God and they're going to hell, I will be convicted about that. It'll become a part of me. And you know what? I'm going to evangelize or I'm going to give. And you know what happens? When you follow this, it produces discernment. You cannot get discernment or growth if it doesn't start here. And then you don't believe something, form convictions, and it impacts your behavior. Here's where a lot of Christians stop in the church. Do you believe this? Amen. Preach it, brother. And it stays at the belief level. How do I know it's not a conviction? Because you don't see it in their lifestyle. Listen, I can say all day, lost people matter to God, but is it reflected in my lifestyle? I can say investing in God's kingdom is a conviction, but do I see it in my checkbook? See, it comes down to taking the truth, developing convictions, and then fleshing it out in my life. And the more I do that, you know what happens? I develop discernment. I develop a Christian biblical worldview. And what happens is I filter what I hear through that grid, and that helps me to distinguish truth from error. And so would you say you're growing this morning, or are you just coming on Sunday? I got to ask myself that question, because listen, we're all in process. I haven't arrived Just because I have knowledge or John has knowledge doesn't necessarily mean we're growing. Would you say you're growing in your walk genuinely, or would you say that you're just coming on Sunday, hearing a message, praise God for the message, pastor, but it's not really affecting your behavior? And so if you and I are going to avoid spiritual predators, what's the first thing we must do? We must love the what? The truth. Paul says, I have a great struggle. Secondly, we must grow in the truth. He talks about what? Planting, budding, building on that foundation, walking with Christ. Well, there's one final thing that you and I must do if we're going to avoid spiritual predators, and that is we must guard or defend the truth. We must guard or defend the truth. This one is critical. We got to be able to stand up against false teachers, not belligerently, not nasty, but we must be able to defend the truth and guard it. Notice what he says in verse 8 of chapter 2 of Colossians. See to it. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. See to it that no one takes you what? Captive. You know that word captive there? It means to plunder. Don't let false teachers plunder you like booty or gold, like Boko Haram did. You know that's the top terrorist organization right now in Africa, Boko Haram, You know what they did several years ago? They went into a village and they poached 200 girls and took them out, captured them, took them as plunder. Paul says, don't let false teachers plunder you. You have a responsibility to defend and guard. Look at verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. See, you have a responsibility to guard and defend. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. If you have died with Christ to the elemental principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, here it is, why are you submitting yourself to the decrees? Don't submit to it. And so in all these verses, he's saying we got to guard the truth, we got to defend the truth. Notice what Jude 1.3 says. He says, I've written to you so that you will earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. You know what that word contend means? It means to fight for the truth. The Bible has been delivered once and all to the saints. We have to fight for the truth. How about 2 Timothy 1.14? He says, guard the good deposit, Timothy, that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Why? Because the truth is being hijacked all the time. The truth is being assaulted all the time. Why? By the father of lies by false teachers. And so you and I, if we are going to avoid spiritual predators, it's not enough just to love the truth. It's not enough just to grow in the truth. The Bible says we must guard and defend the truth. Now, what was he telling them in Colossians to guard and to fight for? Here it is, the gospel message. You're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. This seems to be the one theme throughout the New Testament that's attacked more often than not. You say, why does Satan do that? Because if he can give people a false message of how to be saved, he could lead them into perdition. That's why Satan always convolutes the gospel message by adding works. 
And he says to the Colossian Christians, I want you to defend and stand against this idea that you're saved by faith in Christ plus what? Good works. Now, here is what they were adding to the gospel. There was four things that these heretics were adding to the gospel, that you're saved by faith alone. Number one, Christ plus philosophy. Christ plus philosophy. Paul is going to attack this. Look at verses 8 and 9. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elemental principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in what? Bodily form. In other words, he's saying in Jesus, Jesus is fully God. Why would he say that? Because the philosophy being taught was saying that Jesus was not fully God. He didn't have a body. He wasn't incarnate. And so this was a philosophy, and he says it's not God's philosophy. It's based on the traditions of men, and it's based on the elemental principles of this world. What is that? Well, there's a lot of debate. I don't have time to go into it. But he's talking about demonic spirits that some of these teachers believed that were actually influencing people on earth. Kind of like horoscopes today, the new age. They talk about how astral spirits end up influencing people today. This was an anti-God philosophy. And what did the Greeks love? They loved human wisdom. Now, not all philosophy is bad, but any philosophy that leaves Christ out or doesn't present an accurate picture of Christ is bankrupt. And so they were saying it's Christ. He's good, but it's Christ plus philosophy that saves you. Paul says, eh, it's not. Secondly, they were saying it's Christ plus legalism. Notice, if you will, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Why? These things, verse 17, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, he's attacking not only the Gnostic heresy, but there's a Jewish element mixed in here. Evidently, some of these people had some Jewish roots to them, maybe the Essenes, we don't know. And what they were saying is Christ is good, but he's not enough to save you. You got to keep a lot of the Old Testament regulations. And a number of these things weren't bad in the Old Testament. God instituted them. But what he says is they have found their fulfillment in Christ. So I don't need to celebrate the Passover. I don't need to celebrate all the feasts and festivals. Now, if you want to do that, and your heart is right, and you're not doing it for salvation, fine. I know there are Jewish Christians who like to observe some of the feasts, but listen, if you're observing that in order to gain merit with God, that's wrong. He says, don't listen to them. It's not Christ plus legalism. That's what the Judaizers were doing. Christ is not enough. You got to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Remember that heresy in Galatians? It wasn't the organic gospel. The organic gospel is no preservatives and no additives. Whenever you add to the gospel, you are injecting preservatives and additives. Well, there's a third thing that they taught, and that is Christ plus mysticism. Christ plus philosophy, Christ plus legalism, Christ plus mysticism. Look at verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. You know that false humility? And the worship of angels, there's the mysticism, taking his stand on visions he has seen. Oh, I ascended into the heavenlies, and I saw inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Paul says they're not visions from God. They originate in their carnal mind. Verse 19, and here's the problem, and not holding fast to the head. Who's that? Christ. From whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. In other words, they have disconnected themselves from Jesus who is the head of the church and what they're doing is they're boasting about their mystical experiences. We know that some of the false religions out there talk about this where they ascend or, or how about today in the new age you have your spirit guide. You ever heard of people talking about their spirit guide, or they see angels and they worship angels? You get people that do that on television. There was some guy years ago that would channel on television. He had a show. John something was his name. 
I don't remember it, but you get into this. And by the way, there are some in the Christian church, and I won't name names, but you watch them on TV, and it's like they always have one mystical experience after another. They're always talking about their trips to heaven, where they talk to God, they see God, and it almost makes you feel like, man, these guys are on another plane. Let me give you a hint. They're within the prosperity movement. You see, when you teach Christ plus mysticism, that's a false gospel. Well, there's one other thing that they taught, and that is this, Christ plus asceticism. Asceticism is when you deny your body. Verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elemental principles of the world, if you have died to those demonic spirits at salvation, why... As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to the decrees? Now, here are some of the decrees that they were talking about in Colossae. Don't handle that. Don't taste that. Don't touch that. Why? Because it's physical. It's evil. Listen, food is evil. Don't have sex in marriage because that's evil. Brings pleasure. See, this is the idea, asceticism. You hear about these monks in Hinduism, the Dalai Lama, they go into great meditation, and they starve their body, and they do all these things, and notice what he says about it. He says, which, verse 22, are all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. In other words, when man interjects his teachings, it's temporary. God's teachings are eternal. And look what he says in verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of what? Wisdom. You ever seen some of these religious gurus? And I'm not making fun of them. We want them to come to Jesus. But sometimes they have the appearance of very, very wise. The Dalai Lama. Deepak Chopra. They have all this mystical knowledge and they flagellate their body and they starve their body and they fast all the time. And there's nothing wrong with fasting, but the motive is wrong in these systems. It has the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against what? Fleshly indulgence. Now, here is what Paul is saying to guard against. He's saying to the Colossians and to you and I, I want you to defend and guard salvation by faith alone in Jesus saves. It's not Christ plus philosophy. It's not Christ plus legalism. It's not Christ plus mysticism. It's not Christ plus asceticism. He says it's Christ alone. Look at verse 10. You'll notice it up on the screen. He says, and in Christ you have been made, say it out loud, complete. Christ alone is sufficient to save you. You don't need Christ plus philosophy. You don't need Christ plus mysticism, asceticism, and legalism. You say, Mike, why is Christ complete to save me? Why do I only need Jesus Christ? And listen, I don't know about you, but that brings me joy. Because in every other religious system, listen carefully, it's bondage. How would you like to go through all the rigmarole of their religious system, even in Islam, and you really don't know if you have assurance of salvation? You see, Jesus says, you're not good enough. You'll never keep my law perfectly. But you know what? I have forgiven you. I have canceled your debt, and I will take you as you are and forgive you past, present, and future. Listen, that sets us free. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. Now, here's how we're complete in Christ. He ends with this. Notice verse 11 through 15. Here's why Christ is sufficient to save me. In verse 11, and in him, that is Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's not talking about physical circumcision here like in the Old Testament, which was a sign of the covenant. He's talking about when you came to Christ, God circumcised your heart. He cut out the foreskin of your sin nature. In other words, you died with Christ. The old you was crucified with Christ. That's what he means, you were circumcised with Christ. And then in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, this is not water baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working who raised him from the dead. In other words, he says you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you were raised with Christ. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and your transgression and the uncircumcised of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven 
all your transgressions. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against you, which was hostile to God or hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. In other words, in that day, they had a listing of all your offenses and you were guilty. In fact, when they crucified a person, they would put your offenses up on the cross. By the way, did you hear about Chase Manhattan, that bank, largest bank? In Canada, they decided to pull out with their credit cards. I don't know why I didn't read the whole article, but here's what caught my attention. They said in Canada, every person that has debt with Chase credit card, it is forgiven. And they wiped it clean. And so Paul says, your debt has been forgiven. You have violated the law. You deserve death, but Jesus wiped out your slate. Verse 15, he says, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He defeated Satan. So let me summarize what he has said here. Here's why you're complete in Christ. Look at this slide right here. Here's what he says. You're complete because you died with Christ, that spiritual circumcision. You were buried with Christ. I was raised with Christ. I was made alive by Christ. I'm forgiven of all my sin, and I am victorious over Satan. This happens at the moment of salvation, and therefore I am complete in Christ. Verse 10, I don't need Christ plus legalism. I don't need Christ plus philosophy, mysticism, or asceticism. Christ is sufficient to save me, and that's all I need. I'm complete. And what he's telling the Colossians is stand for the truth. Don't listen to these false teachers that are adding to the gospel. And it's the same today, people. We must stand for the truth, especially, here are the two. If you don't get anything else in this message, I want you to remember this. There's two doctrines that Satan attacks relentlessly. And these are the two by which you can measure anybody out there. Ask them these two questions. Are you ready? Who do you believe Jesus is? And how do you believe you get to heaven? That's the litmus test, those two. Who do you believe about Jesus? Is he the God-man? That was being attacked in Colossae. He was one of those emanations. And Paul says, no, he is God in human flesh. He created the material world. And then the second one is what? How do you get to heaven? False teachers always say it's faith plus what? works. And so as Christians, we got to defend that doctrine that you're saved by faith alone. Why? Because listen, Yale... Harvard, Princeton, Brown, all these missionary schools that started in the 17 and 1800s, they started off as missionary schools to train men and women to send them out. And you know what happened over time? Because they wanted respectability, because they wanted the approval of the world, what happened was they allowed men and women to come in who weren't saved and say, you know what, if we, if we are hard line on this, people aren't going to come to our school and we're not going to get this. And so we need to water this down a little bit. I had a friend, she went to Princeton. She said, I had to leave because in my class, they were saying Jesus did not rise from the dead. It's a spiritual metaphor. And see, that's what happens when the church does not guard the truth and defend it. You say, Mike, how can I do that? I don't write books. You know how you do it? You got to know the truth. You got to disciple others in the truth. Start with your children and what you got to do is pass it down to the next generation. And listen, Jude says, snatch people from the fire. When you're dealing with somebody who's caught up in lies, you got to lovingly give them the truth. But it is our responsibility to stand for the truth. It is our responsibility to guard the truth. I'll end with this. Martin Luther, you see him up on the screen. One of the things that got him into hot water was he went to the church at Wittenberg and he took this thing and he nailed 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg. It was 95 problems he had with the Catholic Church in terms of their doctrine. And this was the area where they debated ideas, kind of like the Barnes and Noble today, or the Facebook or the internet. And this created a furor in that area of Germany. And it began to spread. At that time, the printing press was invented. And you know what happened? His ideas were beginning to spread to England, to Scotland, and all these other areas. And there was a revolution that God had going on because Luther said, sola fide, you're saved by faith alone. Sola gratia, you're saved by grace alone. And sola scriptura, it is the Bible alone. 
And the Catholic Church came down on him and said, you need to recant your positions. And he said, I am captivated by the Word of God. I will not compromise the Word of God. And he stood. You say, who cares? Listen, you're here because he stood. Do you realize the gospel was eclipsed for over a thousand years? God had his people that would come up to the fore and say, hey, what you're teaching is wrong, wrong, wrong. But for a thousand years, darkness reigned. And then God sparked the Protestant Reformation. And all Protestant churches, regardless of the denomination, have come about because Luther stood for the truth. And so listen, there are spiritual predators out there. We need to love them and reach them for the gospel. But if you don't want to be victimized by them, number one, you need to what? Love the truth. Number two, you need to grow in the truth. And then finally, you need to defend or guard the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Very clear in Colossians chapter 2. A lot of information. But Lord, you've given us a blueprint on how to deal with spiritual predators. Help us, Lord, to be discerning. And I pray that it would start with all of us, that, Father, we would love the truth. Give us that love for your truth, not to beat people over the head, but to love your truth. I pray that we would grow in the truth, that we would not just be Sunday Christians who fulfill our spiritual checklist. I went to church today. I salved my conscience. I did what God asked me to do, and, Father, we become minimalists in our thinking. And I pray, Father, that we would defend and guard the truth. Father, your church has the responsibility to stand because, Lord, when we don't, we see Harvard, we see Yale, we see Princeton, we see Brown, and we see a lot of liberal churches that have gone apostate because it started in the pulpit, watering it down. Lord, raise up a bevy of new preachers today that are going to teach the Word of God and preach it with boldness, Lord God, because we know there are greater assaults on the church today. Father, you see it. Truth is being assaulted in our culture, and we need men and women who will stand for the truth. And with all heads bowed and eyes closed, let me ask you a question this morning. Are you really growing in your walk with God, or are you just checking off the box? Are you in the Word? Are you in prayer on a regular basis? If you've drifted from that, God wants you to come back. God loves you, and He wants us to be in fellowship with Him. I just want to encourage you, be in the Word of God and, and learn Bible doctrine and grow in your walk with God. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.